When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? This is the word of the Lord. The first time Gail and I, Trey and Jason, went to Israel, uh, we had bought into a prescribed trip, and it began from Tel Aviv over to Jerusalem. But I knew that was backward for us Christians. Uh, Jerusalem should be where it all ends. Uh, one should go north first, and that's the way we've done on subsequent trips. Jesus was in Jerusalem only once, as Matthew tells the story. That was the last week of his life. Uh, his ministry had taken place in the north, up at Galilee. But earlier in the gospel, Jesus had said to the disciples, now we have to go to Jerusalem. And they started down the Jordan River Road. Now, let me help you with the geography just a little bit. From the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had chosen to make his home when he left Nazareth, Capernaum, down to Jerusalem is 80 miles. You have the Sea of Galilee up at the north. The Jordan River flows out of the south end of it all the way down to Jericho. And right at Jericho, the river empties into the Dead Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is on the west. The Jordan River is on the east. Once one reaches Jericho, one begins a 17-mile climb to Jerusalem. In 17 miles, one goes from 1,200 feet below sea level at Jericho to more than 2,400 feet above sea level at Jerusalem, a climb of about three-quarters of a mile in a 17-mile journey. They have arrived, as Dr. Kroll prayed for us a few minutes ago. They have arrived. They are now at the city. I've rearranged the order a little bit because I think it tells the story well. Number one, this was done in order to fulfill the scripture. Behold, your king cometh unto you. Matthew here is obviously using Zechariah chapter 9. You heard a part of Zechariah chapter 9 if you came to the Christmas portion of Handel's Messiah. Aaron Studebaker sang it for you. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice greatly, you daughters of Jerusalem. And it talks, behold, your king cometh unto you. Dr. F. W. Bear and some other theologians believe that Zechariah was picturing the triumphant ride of Alexander the Great into the city of Jerusalem in the year 322. And if that ride was triumphant, how much more triumphant the ride of the Messiah that's what Zechariah is trying to say. You think Alexander the Great was somebody. You think his armies were impressive. 
rejoice, rejoice greatly. I tell you, your king cometh unto you. But Matthew edits the text. He leaves out two very important words on purpose. Mighty and victorious, it says. Mighty and victorious cometh he unto you. And instead jumps to the word meek and humble cometh he unto you. Because the Messiah who came was not exactly what they had in mind. But what Matthew is trying to convey in saying this was to fulfill is that God is in charge of this story. This is his story and it will get told and lived out according to the plan of God. Dr. Robert Gorell recently was telling his congregation at Church of the Servant in Oklahoma City about that horrible plane crash of John F. Kennedy Jr. along with his wife and his wife's sister. And he was saying that as one who is interested in flying, if you go back and read now the FAA reports, uh, you can pretty much tell what happened to young John Kennedy that night. They were on their way to a wedding. They got off a little bit late. They were flying off the east coast of the Atlantic Ocean there, and suddenly the sun went down. Sun went down behind them. They're flying eastward, and the Atlantic and the sky look just alike. No land on your right wing, no land on your left wing, just sky and water, nothing else. And Dr. Gorell was saying, we think we can tell if we're going up or down, if we're moving left or right, but in fact, one cannot. The inner ear gets confused and one starts to make wrong decisions. They say that they were flying at 5,500 feet and all of a sudden, he must have thought the nose was up too much and he starts pulling it down. They descended 500 feet. He must have realized at some point that wasn't quite right. And so he began to bank far too sharply, a 35 degree bank to one side. And it went into what pilots call the graveyard spiral and went into the Atlantic. Dr. Gorell says this was a new plane. It had the very finest of the instruments. But if one decides one should fly by what one feels, one gets into lots of trouble. You have to trust the instruments. What is your altitude? Too low? Think too little of yourself? Too high? Think too much of yourself? What is your speed? He says you ought not to get behind God when he's moving quickly. And don't get ahead of God when he chooses to slow down a little bit. March at God's speed. One's attitude. Well, we are sinners saved by grace. And our attitude is one of gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And one's heading. One's heading is supposed to be God's heading. We're going where God wants to go. We're going where God directs us to go. This is God's story. God's in control here. And Jesus, though he has feelings, will not go by his feelings. He will trust the instrumentation. And Matthew says, that's the book. That's the word of God. Number two, Jesus says to his disciples, we're coming up on Jerusalem now. As they came across a little hill, there's a small town of Bethphage and another one right adjoining it called Bethany, where Mary, Martha and Lazarus lived. And then you're standing right on the top of the Mount of Olives. 
go into the village, he said. You will find a colt along with it, uh, uh, the, the mother, these two little burros. You will find them tied there. Start untying them to bring them to me. If anyone asks you, what do you think you're doing? Say, the master needs them now. And they will say, fine. And that's what they did. And Matthew is saying, you see, God is in control. And since God is in Christ, Christ is in control as long as he's doing things God's way. He was very man of very man. So this must mean that he's already made arrangements, you see. He understands the importance of symbols. He knows that a year from now, five years from now, 2,000 years from now, symbols will be important. An elderly Pope Benedict was winding his way through the Vatican this morning carrying palm branches in every little church around the world today and big ones alike we wave palm branches Jesus understood the importance of symbols a donkey a crowd an entrance into the city Dr. Theodore Wardlaw is president of the Presbyterian Seminary down in Austin Texas he wrote recently about going to see a wonderful exhibit of the paintings of Vincent van Gogh uh, so these had been assembled from several of the great uh, museums of the world, and they were offering little seminars so that you could better understand all these paintings that had been gathered. And he went to one of those. He said, after we had been taught what to look for and so on, then we were told, okay, now go. And we started going. But one man in our group, he said, practically ruined the show for all the rest of us. When we got to the first painting, he walked right up to it, until his eye must have been within an inch of the canvas. And he moved across from one side of the frame to the other, one inch from the painting, he said, like so. And then he dropped down about an inch, and he went all the way back. One inch, and said, we <coughs> cleared our throats, uh, and, you know, <coughs> he didn't seem to get it. So somebody finally said, hey, none of the rest of us can see. And he said, well, that won't really matter, because I can tell you don't know how to look at a great painting. But then Dr. Wardlaw said, notice where they put the benches in big museums. They know how far you need to sit from the painting to observe it properly. And the bigger the canvas is, the farther back you need to sit. And then he mentions that only in Luke's gospel do we have the sentence, the acquaintances of Jesus and those who had come with him from Galilee stood at a distance observing, observing. Palm Sunday. Monday, chasing out the money changers. Thursday, Dr. Kroll and our choir will help us with that. Good Friday. Those things about Pontius Pilate, about Herod Antipas, about the high priest, uh, all of that transfigured the soldiers, the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, uh, the women weeping. This is a big story. Stand back and see all the different pieces. Stone rolled away, no body inside, young men in gleaming white apparel. You know this story. Stand back a little bit and see all of it. God is in control and Jesus is doing things God's way. Number three. Remember that one approached Jerusalem as Jesus made his journey from the east. 
But there was another one coming from the west named Pontius Pilate. The Mediterranean is about 35 miles west of Jerusalem. The Jordan River, about 15 miles, if you could go straight down to it, from, from the Jordan River. 35 miles from the sea, about 15 miles from the river. Jesus and his crew are coming from the east. Pontius Pilate's coming from the west. You remember what we tried to do when we first attacked Iraq four years ago? It was called shock and awe. Shock and awe. We are the greatest military power on the face of the planet, and we hit that city of Baghdad with everything we had. And it went on hour after hour after hour. Shock and awe. Well, that's what the Romans tried to do in their own time. Can you imagine what that parade looked like? Pontius Pilate, who lived on the coast, the ruins of Caesarea are still there. The amphitheater is still there. The Roman aqueduct that brought fresh water from the hills 20 miles away, still there. Passover was a dangerous time. In various years, the year 30, the year 70, the insurrections at Passover. So Pilate came. Centurion has to do with the number 100, as in century. 100, 100 more, 100 more coming down the road from the west with Pontius Pilate riding a war horse. And from the east, this man unknown to most of them had grown up in Nazareth, called disciples, had done marvelous, wonderful things for the sick, the blind, lame, up in Galilee. Who is this man? Dr. Marcus Borg, Father John Dominic Crossan, a Lutheran and a Roman Catholic. Can you imagine 500 years ago Martin Luther and a Catholic priest sitting down to write something together? These two sat down and wrote together the last week of Jesus. And they say, the last week of Jesus is about these two parades. One of them, shock and awe. The other, riding a burro with his toes, almost dragging in the sand. Which parade did you attend? Which procession do you join? If you're in the wrong one, there's still time for you to repent. Number four. Matthew says, the whole city was in turmoil. I don't think that's a good rendering. The word literally is shaken. It's the same word used in Greek to describe earthquakes. Years ago, Gail and I were on a short vacation out in San Francisco. And in the middle of the night, I felt her elbow and she whispered, somebody's in the room. And so I was slowly raising my head when I felt the bed shake. It felt like someone had just bumped the foot of the bed. And then we both heard the lamp rattling. It wasn't a major earthquake, but it was enough that the hotel room was shaking a little. The bed was shaking. The lamp was shaking. And the next morning when we turned on the news, you could see news reports of canned goods that had been dumped off shelves in grocery stores nearby. Shaking. That's what this word really is. The whole city of Jerusalem was like an earthquake. Who is this? They were asking. I haven't seen a movie in a good long time. 
have been playing tennis on Saturday afternoons, and that used to be my movie time. So I really haven't seen a movie in a long time. Recently, I saw a picture of a movie that had come to town. It's called Black Snake Moan. Uh, the picture, uh, an older black man, young white girl, a woman, uh, with a big chain around her waist, and he's holding on to it, and she's straining against him. Uh, now, I, I don't, wouldn't see that one if I had time to see that one. But then I saw the review in the Tulsa World written by Michael Smith, and he said in his title, A Story of Redemption and Healing. Those are our words. We know these words. And I read his review. And this is what he said. Whoever picked the picture for publicizing this movie did a very poor job, he said. Now note, it is R-rated. It has violence. It has sex. It has drug use. It has vulgar language. But for grown-up people, it is a story of redemption and healing. It's about an older black farmer in the deep south whose heart is broken. His wife of more than a dozen years has just walked out on him. She's run away with his own brother, and he is devastated. The young woman, played by Christina Ricci, is poor, white trash. She's been living with Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake has been called up by the National Guard to go serve his country, and so she reverts to being poor white trash. Lots of drugs, lots of alcohol, lots of different men. And one of those men has beaten her savagely and kicked her out of his car out in the country near this black man's farm. And he picks her up. Now you discover as the movie goes on that she is a victim of abuse. She was horribly treated as a little girl. And she's still acting out this confused identity of hers. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to relate to men in whatever way? It's a, it's a terribly mixed up history that she's had. And so Samuel L. Jackson puts a chain around her waist and chains her to furniture in his house. And she wakes up. And she starts trying to get away. But he's not about to abuse her. This is not about sexual love. This is about a father and a daughter. Not real father and daughter, but an older man who sees this as a wayward daughter and decides she needs to be changed. Too much hurt and pain in this life. And so a man who hasn't had the heart to pick up a guitar and sing in a long time sings to her. Like a father, black snake moan. At one time, she's still straining to get away, and he says to her, But you ain't right yet. God put you in my path, and I'm not letting you go till you get right. Who is this man who sets all who will receive him right? with Almighty God.